I was worried there for a little bit that Paul's going to start preaching my sermon <laughs> tonight, but we have indeed been uh, going through the Gospel of Luke since April of 2003. I wanted to just debrief a little bit tonight and talk through that for a few moments before we head into further consideration of, our, of the ascension of Christ as we looked at that earlier today. But it took two years and seven months for this journey. Uh, this is a long time to be in one book of Scripture. There's no question about that. I uh, realize, however, that that's all a bit relative. I think of the Puritan pastor John Hasselback, who spent 21 years in the first chapter of Isaiah. So if you feel that we've been in Luke too long, just remember that. There was another Puritan, William Gouge, who preached through Hebrews in 33 years. Uh, that was a different day and a different uh, understanding of homiletics, the science of preaching and how texts of Scripture should be handled. And those individuals, as was the case, would take just phrases and run from those phrases throughout Scripture and, and uh, develop uh, theology from those simple phrases of the text, of a, of a simple text. That's how they did their preaching. But uh, just keep that in perspective when you think of how long we've been in the book of Luke. Actually, we took fairly significant chunks of Scripture uh, to get through this book as quickly as we did. The reason was not because there was any need for us to rush through the book, but rather, I guess, is a, a different kind of homiletic, a different type of understanding of preaching than would have been true in Puritan days, or that would be true in the uh, broader uh, evangelical church in America today. Uh, the interest today is very much a uh, person-driven, uh, particularly it's driven by those who are visiting the church. How do we capture a person's attention immediately and hold that attention and week after week give them something that's new and fresh and attention-getting? I'll tell you, there's a lot of passages in the book of Luke that just would not ever get in on such preaching. You just skip those passages, I guarantee you. Uh, that is not the way that we approach preaching in this church. We want to work our way through books because God has the message there in those books. And where there are passages that are difficult for us to handle, hard to understand, or perhaps challenging and convicting to us, discussions about issues that people don't want to hear about today, such as Jesus' teaching on hell or money, we have to go through those passages. When you take a verse-by-verse -verse approach, you must go through the tough places and the difficult discussions. There are many others that we could add to that that we did go through and did consider. It bends and stretches the preacher and it bends and stretches the people. But I think and thank God for this assembly and know that there are those who come in week in and week out and say, we're very thankful you don't skip passages that there aren't the hard passages that get set to the side. Another reason, though, if I can just go a little bit more into the philosophy of preaching for a moment, is to honor the way in which Luke himself arranged his material. That's why I tended to take larger chunks of Scripture, because it's clear that the author is putting things together in a unit. And as you consider that unit you, I think, handle the material a little more faithfully than if you simply keep dicing it up week after week with little chunks and little pieces of it. What can happen is there can be a theme, one theme 
uh, in 25 verses and you cut that up into five messages because it's easier to handle the shorter text, the problem being is that often by the time you get to the fifth one, you've changed the theme because you're tired, everybody's tired of hearing the same theme four weeks in a row. Uh, and so you begin to change the theme. I've tried to take fairly significant chunks to, to seek to honor what Luke has done in the arrangement of the material. If Luke chose to form a literary unit, we wanted to look at those literary units to honor what was there. There are certainly times, let me say, that it is wise and right and beneficial to do the Puritan sermon, for instance, to take a text of Scripture and to develop it theologically. I think there are times when it is right for us to take one verse of Scripture and to sit down and let it satur and saturate in it and uh, allow our minds to be marinated in that text. These are good things. But again, we want to honor what the Scriptures teach, not only in the sense of what is being said, but also in the way that it is being arranged and put together. And that is the reason for the sizable chunks. So that it's kind of a both and, isn't it? Two and, two and a half years is an awful long time to get through a book. But a book the size of Luke, that means that there were many, many messages of 20 and 25 and sometimes even 30 or more verses. And that calls upon a church to be able to receive that kind of teaching, that kind of length of teaching. Uh, and I'm so thankful for the great response throughout this series. My hope in all of this has been that the church would be better fed. There were many, many weeks when I really wanted to divide things up and take a shorter passage because it meant less study or to be done sooner in preparing my notes for dissemination. But I hope that in the end that you've been better fed. And I'd like us to turn to Psalm 115, and here's again where I was afraid Paul was going to start preaching my sermon. But I wanted to take us back to, as he has a very good memory, uh, in fact, the first message in Luke back in April of 2003. And in that message, I introduced with Psalm 115 and want to bring us back as we've closed now this series or bringing it to close here tonight to come back and to remember again why we've taken this journey together. One of the primary reasons is reflected in the 115th Psalm where the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. It is a statement like that that we hope will hang as a banner over our church, that this would be the goal from beginning to end, that the name of God would be glorified. We have a lot to change in our individual lives and in our church's life for that matter. But this is our desire, this is our craving, that the name of the Lord would be glorified. Why do the nations say, verse 2, where is their God? The nations taunt the Israelites who had no idols. Verse 3 is the psalmist's answer. Our God is in the heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Because Israel has no idols, but the truth is, our God reigns in heaven. Verse 4, but their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk. 
nor can they utter a sound with their throats. That's the idols of our world. Now verse 8, we need to mark this. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We become what we behold. We become like that which most attracts our attention. We become like that which most consumes our interest and stirs our affections. We become like what we behold. The goal of the series of working our way through the Gospel of Luke is to so unfold the glories of Christ revealed in the Gospel that we learn to hate sin more. That we learn to be renewed in our love, that we are renewed in our love for God, which in turn ignites in us a renewed passion to broadcast the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to unbelievers. When we behold the Lord Jesus Christ, it is those kinds of things that begin to be reflected in our life. Not miraculously, no guarantee, but that is certainly the process of the believer who is growing. To look into the face of Jesus Christ does not encourage sin. To look in the face of Jesus Christ and to see the stretch of His ministry and how He lived His life encourages selflessness and holiness and godliness. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we are renewed in our love for Him. When we consider what He has done, some would ask, what may I do to gain a love for God? There's a dullness in my heart, a dullness in my soul, and I don't love Him as I should. There really is no other pattern than to consistently consider the love of Jesus for you. To consistently look at it and understand it and see what He has done. We must lift up Christ and behold His face. And as we behold His face, we begin to see His love for us and we begin to understand what love is. And by His grace, He warms a love in our heart for Him. We can't produce love for Christ in our heart on our own. We can't just turn it on. But what we can do is look at Him. And the problem is, so often when we do not find love in our heart for God, it's because we have too much love in our heart for ourselves. We just see us. We see our life. We see who we are. And we get so consumed with me. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, I tell you, as I, as I look at this moral giant, that's, those are too small of words, but as I look at this moral giant, I feel so selfish. Don't you? You just see the way in which he poured out his life and gave himself for people and ultimately laid down his life to die in our behalf. That is sanctifying. That changes us. It moves us. To behold Jesus Christ is to become like Him for those who are His people. Without the indwelling Spirit of God, that of course is utterly impossible. We might become nicer people. We might become a little bit more interested in others if we behold Christ without the indwelling Spirit. But where the Spirit of God is there to bring conviction and to show us the truth of God's Word, to reveal Jesus to us, we can become like Christ. In fact, God has told us that that's exactly what He's up to. He is striving 
He is not only striving, but He is in fact conforming us into the likeness of Christ from one stage of glory to another. We have a lot of pieces to be chipped off, don't we? To get down to that and to see us become who Jesus is. But it has been our desire through this series, my desire to look into the face of Christ and to become like Him. And that we, as we would saturate ourselves in the life of Jesus and understanding it better, would become like Jesus Christ. Who is your idol? Who are you looking to? Who are you beholding? I hope that it's Christ. Christ crucified and risen and coming again. I hope then as we've considered this series that we will be growing in the likeness of Christ. And as I mentioned today, to link it back to today's, this morning's sermon, that we would realize as God's people that we are part of the story. That we are witnesses to this Christ and to His saving power. These are just a few closing remarks as we bring this series of sermons to an end and just consider again uh, Luke and um, Will we ever consider Christ again? Of course we will. In fact, I plan to just continue to do that in a different way in the days ahead here. But, of course, Christ is always at the center of every message, every sermon, and every book. And so we always contemplate Jesus. But it's been a tremendous privilege to go through this book. I, I think this has nothing to do with reality, but a little game that I played in my head is to say, I, I now understand why there's four Gospels, so that any preacher who finishes one doesn't fall apart in deep depression, that there aren't more. Uh, I don't know if I'll live long enough to consider the others with you, but by God's grace, we will dip into others as well uh, through the years as God gives us time and opportunity together. But as we finish out this day, I'd like to return to the end of the book of Luke, and to fill in a few details concerning the ascension. Don't turn there yet. We're going to get there in a little bit. But um, to consider the ascension of Jesus Christ in light of the Old Testament. This is something we didn't really have time to focus on earlier today. And I'll tell you, I, I'll say up front, I, I, I feel like I'm playing with stuff that's way over my head here. Okay, So work with me on this. I'm just going to throw out what I've got at this point. What I think I have a little bit of a grasp on. And these are some deep things, and, and we could go a long time and a lot further and a lot deeper. I'm going to try not to get into any trouble, but I, I want to just lay out some ideas that really are fascinating. I, I feel I'm probably at the place in my life and understanding that I, of Scripture that I'd like to more read about this than I would to preach about it, but I want to share with you what I've seen, at least, and for us to just begin to start and to think more deeply about what is going on in the life of Christ. This helps us, I think, this sermon to just see again the intricacies of God's plan and how Old Testament and New Testament are brought together and how Jesus' life is, is a, a following through of all that God had done in the past. But I'd like us first to start, this may see a little, a little bit off the wall, but the glory cloud of Israel and the ascension of Jesus Christ. First of all, to consider that the glory cloud led Israel out of Egypt. Now, you know this, but let's go back to Exodus 13. I'd like to just go quickly through a few passages just to remind us and to get our eyes set on the truth that is revealed here. 
I refer to the Shekinah, or that's the, a name that is given to the glory cloud that led Israel. Uh, Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21. By day, Exodus 13, 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This, of course, being the people of Israel as they have left Egypt. This cloud leads them. Chapter 14 and verse 19. 14, 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them between them and the pursuing Egyptian army. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel throughout the night. The cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. This great cloud of, uh, indicating the presence of God with His people shines light toward the Israelites in the sea as they are crossing the sea preparing that night to cross the sea and, and to, be, to escape the Egyptian army. And he sends uh, utter darkness on the Egyptian army so that there's no attempt to uh, approach Israel on that night. Exodus chapter 35, if you move your way there. I'm going somewhere with this. Just, you get, just throwing out little pieces on the coffee table in front of you. We'll assemble it later. Just take these little pieces. We have the glory cloud going before Israel, leading the Israelites on their journey out of Egypt. At Exodus 35, if you would just page through the next four chapters, we notice here regulations concerning the tabernacle that would be constructed there in the wilderness where the glory cloud led. The tabernacle would be set up and it is at that tabernacle that the people would meet God. As you go through chapter 35 and 36, uh, 37, we have the ark and the table and the lampstand and the altar of incense, the furniture that was part of this tabernacle. Chapter 38 as well. And then some of the materials that were used to construct the tabernacle at the end of chapter 38. The priestly garments in chapter 39 are also described. Then as we come to chapter 40, with all of this effort being put into this tabernacle, God laying out, here is exactly how you will meet with me. We then read this intriguing passage in chapter 40, beginning at verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. So Moses finished the work as he finished the tabernacle with all of the regulations. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. It glowed with the glorious presence of God in the darkness, and in the day, that burning light 
was shrouded by this great Shekinah glory, this great cloud that hid the presence of God. But it's that cloud that meets with the Israelites in the tabernacle. The Israelites, of course, enter Canaan. They cross into the promised land, and they establish their presence there. Through a series of events, they come to the place where they capture Jerusalem, and ultimately the temple is set up there in Jerusalem, 1 Kings chapter 8. If you'll turn there, 1 Kings chapter 8. You know the history here is David conquers Jabus, Joab getting away into the city, and the site being set for where the permanent tabernacle will be, the temple, the place where Israel will meet with God on a permanent basis. This is an intriguing development in the history of the nation, a tremendous development. No longer is this tabernacle running around in the wilderness wherever the cloud leads it, but now it is settled in one place. It is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and a temple is built there. 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up. Then, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. Skip down to verse 10. Verse 10. When these priests withdrew from the holy place... The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This same cloud that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness comes here to Jerusalem and fills the temple. You see the priests running out of there. They can't even be in there as this this cloud rests upon the, the temple and fills it. Well, we know in Israel's history this was a glorious day. But this, the sun set on this glorious day, and Israel began to rebel against God in horrible ways. The degradation of the, of the nation just continued through the years. Continued to the place where God had had enough. His patience had run out. The time for judgment had come. And the time of that judgment is marked in part by the departure of this cloud from the temple. The cloud actually leaves. Ezekiel shows us this in a vision. Ezekiel chapter 2, if you'll turn there. Ezekiel chapter 2. I'm still laying out cards on the table here, but we'll put it all together in a moment. But in Ezekiel chapter 2, we read here this, this amazing vision that Ezekiel has concerning the glory of God and the presence of God in Israel as Ezekiel writes, of course, in captivity. Israel has been overrun. Uh, they are in Babylon. 
in discipline because of their disobedience to God. And Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 2 says, As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. Chapter 8 and verse 5, we find also of Israel's rebellion in this vision to Ezekiel. Chapter 8, this is one, uh, a, a most horrifying chapter in the Bible. This is God's people, but Ezekiel is brought back in this vision to the temple area, and he sees the sin of the people. Verse 5 of chapter 8, Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. They're setting up idols in the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing the utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. Notice that phrase, will drive me from my sanctuary. It's God's sanctuary. It's His presence. And the lifestyle of His people are driving, driving Him away. But you will see things that are even more detestable, he says. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things that, are, that are, they are doing here. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel in front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel. And Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning for Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. These women mourning for a pagan god. He then brought me, verse 16, into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. These pagan rituals 
have separated them from God. And what does God do? Chapter 10 and verse 1. Ezekiel writes, I looked, chapter 10, verse 1, I looked and saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. These are the angelic creatures that hold up the throne of God. They move wherever the throne is to go and bear up that throne in the air. Verse 2, the Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south end of the temple. When the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. Do you notice it? A cloud fills the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. In that temple was the ark of God with the two angels on top that was simply a representation of the greater reality of the angelic beings of God who fly and hold up His true throne. That throne is moving. God is leaving. Chapter 11 and verse, I'm sorry, verse 18 of this chapter, 1018. 1018, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherry beam. While I watched, the cherry beams spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. Chapter 11, and verse 22. Then the cherry beam, 11:22, with the wheels behind, beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city, that's Jerusalem. And it stopped above the mountain east of it. It stopped above the mountain east of Jerusalem. What is that? That's the Mount of Olives. The final scene shows the glory cloud hovering over the Mount of Olives before it departs and leaves Israel. And Ezekiel is whisked back to his people in Babylon. It's left there in our image to see the glory of God departing his people, hovering over this mount. Now let's go to Luke chapter 24 and begin to piece some things together here. Luke chapter 24 and verse 50. I'd like you to turn, if you will, also to Acts chapter 1. Just keep your finger in Luke 24 and then find Acts chapter 1. Luke 24 and verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, this is Jesus, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. To Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. 
Acts 1, 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when two angels appear. Now, putting these two accounts together in Luke's writings, Luke and Acts, we find that the location of Jesus' ascension is from the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, verse 50 of Luke chapter 24. And we find in the Acts account that Jesus is enveloped in a cloud that hid him from their sight. We are not reading too much into the life of Jesus to consider him as the glory of God who descended to earth. John 1 and verse 14 tells us that much. That Jesus Christ came, and if we take the word literally, really is the idea of he came and tabernacled among us. The glory of heaven came to this earth and dwelt among us. And what does John say? We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. They saw in Jesus Christ the glory of God. The glory of God tabernacled once again on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And that glorious presence was again scorned by faithless Israel. We saw that in Ezekiel chapter 8 and all that was going on in the temple. The place where Israel met with God. Well, the place where Israel met with God during the life of Jesus Christ was at His feet. To hear in His teachings the wisdom of God in heaven. To see in His face the glory of heaven. To know that everything that Jesus ever did brought glory to His Father. And Israel said, we don't want him. They hung him on a cross. They took his life. Once again, the glory of God had been spurned. Now the horrific scene was not leaders of Israel with their back to the temple and their face to the sun that they worshipped. Now the worst image imaginable, the image is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. That's what they did to the glory of God. They crucified Christ. And then Jesus rises from the dead and ascends from the Mount of Olives, disappearing into a cloud that shrouds him from their sight. At the very place where the cloud of the glory of God left outside of Jerusalem, from that very place, Jesus Christ ascends to the Father and the glory leaves in one sense. I want to tie this, secondly, not only to the Old Testament glory cloud, but then secondly to Davidic prophecy. Davidic prophecy and the ascension of Jesus. 
Bear with me a bit longer as we go to Psalm 68, and we'll bring this, we'll tie the loose ends up here, I trust, as we end. Psalm 68. And verse 16. We find here a psalm of David. Psalm 68 and verse 16, a psalm of David. In which he says, Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign? Where's the mountain where God chooses to reign? This is Zion. This is where God has placed his temple, where the Lord himself will dwell forever. Says the psalmist prophetically, The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Where's Sinai? There's Egypt in her wilderness wanderings, or, or Israel rather, in her wilderness wanderings, having left Egypt in Sinai. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O oh Lord God, might dwell there. Now there is probably some merging together of David in his victory over Jabus, or perhaps in his bringing of the ark up to Jerusalem. But there is a military sense here in which uh, David is the great victor. And he ascends on high. Where is he ascending to? He's ascending to the hill of Zion, to Jerusalem, on this, on this hill. And you know, as you read in the New Testament accounts, and as we have read in the life of Jesus, numerous references to Jerusalem. Where is it? It's never down south. When Jesus is in Galilee, where does he go to go to Jerusalem? Never down south. That's the American way of saying it. We go down south to Jerusalem. Where does it? It always says they go up. To Jerusalem. Even if you're in the north and you're going south to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. It's always ascending. You see the end of your Psalter, the Psalms of Ascent. You are ascending up to Jerusalem as you go as pilgrims to the great festivals. God isn't concerned with the fact that Mount Hermon's higher. That's not the point. The point is this is the important mountain. Everything ascends to this mountain. In fact, God Himself has ascended to this mountain. He came out of the wilderness of Sinai and He brought His people into the promised land. And together, as a people, they ascended to the holy mount. God has ascended and brought captives in His train. Probably referring here specifically to David who defeated his enemies to conquer Jabus, Jerusalem, and to set up the temple there. But there is certainly here also a prophetic element, not only of referencing David and certainly of God and his work with, with Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, but there is prophetic pointers here to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know this for sure, though we could perhaps read it in and understand it. We know it for sure because the Apostle Paul takes this very passage and applies it directly to Jesus Christ. Let's go to Ephesians 4 and verse 7. Ephesians 4 and verse 7. Speaking of the victorious and risen Christ who gives salvation to His people, Paul writes to the Ephesians in 4.7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, why it says, why the Scripture says, why God has declared, 
back in Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, if you were paying really close attention there, you would say that's not exactly what Psalm 68 says. And that is the truth. Paul twists it a bit, but he can do that for a number of reasons. But the ascension of Jesus, he is indicating here, is not only a departure from the earth, it is an ascension to the throne room of God. So as God takes the Israelites out of Sinai and ascends to the great city of Jerusalem, as David ascends to the great city of Jerusalem and conquering it, so Jesus Christ has ascended to the very throne room of God. If he's ascended, that means that he first descended. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus came to earth, descending to earth, and has now ascended not merely to physical Jerusalem, but to the greater Jerusalem, the greater celestial city, into the throne room of his Father. And Paul does change the figure. Here, Christ is not receiving gifts, but he is giving gifts. I think he's being faithful, though, to the Hebrew idiom, which speaks of one who receives gifts in order to give them. Is that not how our God works? We give to him offerings of praise that he might pour out upon us greater gifts. We are the ones who benefit when we give to God praise. We are the ones who benefit when we worship God in giving. We are the ones who benefit when we pour out our lives to God in service. We give gifts. He turns them right back onto us and multiplies them beyond our imagination. This is how God operates. And as Paul takes that passage, he feels free to do this very thing, knowing that the gifts and sacrifices that were given when David moved to Jerusalem when he moved the, te- the temple there, were simply gifts to God that were going to rain back down upon God's people a million times over. And so he pictures the greater son, Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, giving gifts to his people. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is his gift to us. Ephesians 4 shows that the ascent to Zion is merely a shadow of Christ's ascent into heaven. Paul dispenses with the idea of Jesus receiving gifts from his defeated foes, though that is very true. But he speaks of him giving gifts here to his church. This is where we are in relationship to this ascended and risen Christ. He sends the gift of His Spirit, distributing His spiritual gifts to His people, to His church, and building it up into His own likeness and image. I don't have this all figured out. But when you consider these things, you say, God is great and greatly to be praised. You cannot help but simply be humbled by the salvation work of our great God. And who are we to stand here tonight? Who are we to be together here as his people and to know that Jesus Christ has included us in this great redemptive plan. 
He has descended to this earth, bringing the glory of God here, and has ascended in the cloud that left Israel abandoned, but has gone into the presence of his Father, where he intercedes for us and pours out his gifts of grace upon us. If we're really awake, it kind of puts into perspective the trials of our life, doesn't it? How small they are when we consider what great work God is doing through Jesus Christ for his people. We can only respond to draw the words of the great poet and musician King David from that 68th Psalm. How fitting is this word. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. May he be praised in our hearts. Father, we come before your throne with just a little more sense of the majesty that is yours, of the great intricacies of salvation's plan, of the wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the wonder of your redemptive plan. We just scratch the surface. We just probe into areas that we know are above us. But God, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ who ascended on high. We praise you that his ascension was not merely a departure, but was, in fact, a session at your right hand. We praise you that he rules and reigns today as Lord and Savior and as coming King. Until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, we pray for his soon return. We pray, dear God, that righteousness will reign we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be seen in all his glory, that this world would see his splendor and his greatness, and that you would open our cold hearts to see our world and to understand it in light of this marvelous work of our Savior. We thank you that he died to pay the penalty of our sin. We thank you as his people that he rose again, and that we rise with him to newness of life. We thank you that he ascended to your right hand, and we thank you that he is coming again. May we rejoice in these truths as we bring glory and honor to you on this Lord's day. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.